Welcome to the We Are SC Podcast, Monday morning cornerback edition. This is Eric McKinney, joined by Daryl Rideau. And Daryl, we're here at the uh, tail end of, of USC, the, the big win at Cal, 41-17. to 17. Uh, Right now, we're going to get into looking back at the, at the Cal game. We're also going to get into uh, kind of significantly, I think, talking about UCLA. That, that's sort of the, the, the only big thing left um, this season. Obviously, USC is in line for a bowl game, but finishing out the season, the regular season, against a USC team that, that really kind of humbled and in a way humiliated that USC team last year. I, I think a lot of eyes are going to be on this. And then we'll also touch on a little bit of, uh, I guess, start kind of a, a season recap or, or kind of take stock of, of where this USC program is uh, at this point, you know, really deep late into the season. But looking back at Cal, give me some of your kind of, uh, again, a, a day or two um, in the aftermath, kind of your big picture, what, what has really stayed with you and, and what you feel like is going to last um, from, from watching that game or, or kind of re-watching that game. Uh, to quote an Adam Sandler kind of themed uh, movie, this USC team throughout the course of the whole season has kind of felt like 51st dates. Every day it's been amnesia. Every day it's been starting over on a weekend, a weekend basis, or at least that's the perception that Clay Hilton has always wanted us to kind of focus on that. Take these te- take these games week in and week out in a vacuum. And for the first time in quite some time, it truly felt like, this was a complete game by USC. Now, granted, you have to factor in the, um, the dysfunction of Cal's offense and uh, you know several key players on their offensive team that were injured throughout this game. But the, very, the mere fact that USC all season long has struggled on the road and despite all the pressure, they managed to play a complete four quarters. And for me, that should not go under underappreciated. And that goes no further than looking at the play of Keaton Slovis. I mean, think about it. This is a true freshman that by many metrics came in as a two, maybe three-star, at best a three-star recruit, virtually unknown on the staff, kind of almost felt like an album filler, so to speak, a throw-in uh, because of the, the heralded uh, JT Daniels coming back and all the expectations around him in this and what he could potentially do in an air raid attack. Lo and behold, the first thing we noticed, first thing you brought to my attention throughout camp was the consistency, the, the way that this kid, Keaton Slovis, was able to hit intermediary routes and, and really continue to impress Graham Harrell. The, the, the fruits of all of that preparation is starting to reap its benefits over the course of these last two games. Again, in the game against Cal on the road where USC has struggled all season, he throws for, for four touchdowns, no interceptions, and, and looks like a magician in the pocket. That's big time. That's an NFL type of quarterback. Even in this air raid slash, you know, um, not from under center situation, he is, the maturation that he's showing is before, beyond his time meaning that NFL teams like to see a quarterback creep into the pocket and then from there make plays. And he's finding windows that, quite frankly, don't exist in extending plays with 
pinpoint accuracy. So that to me, beyond anything else, has impressed. And the complementary efforts of the defense and what they've been able to do as they get more and more healthy bodies back, you can kind of understand the architect of what Clancy Pendergast would like to do, the pressure that he's getting from the inside out. And now you're starting to see a secondary that's starting to develop some continuity and chemistry, and they're able to complement the games and stunts that we're starting to see from the, uh, the defensive line. And because of that umbrella shell, it is giving the, uh, the, uh, the defensive line that extra step to get pressure on quarterbacks. Even when they're not necessarily getting home with sacks, they're creating enough havoc to get the quarterback off his mark. So overall, my takeaway is in a vacuum that if you're looking for a midterm test, this to me was by far their best effort. And this is something that they can truly build off of going into the last game against UCLA. Yeah, I, I, I liked a lot of that too. I, I liked, um, you mentioned Keaton Slovis, the USC offense. And, and this was a situation where Cal lost the, the, their best running back and probably their best offensive player when, when Christopher Brown Jr. goes down. Uh, on on the first drive of the game and then they lose their quarterback and, and that's a situation where you know they they haven't been great all season and Chase Garber is the, their quarterback he certainly wasn't putting up phenomenal numbers but when you go 4-0 and and you're ranked number 15 in the country at one point this year as Cal was with him as your quarterback you feel like when he comes back, it, it gives you this kind of renewed sense of, of we can go win. We can beat anybody with this guy. When he goes down, you certainly could kind of feel Cal just get, get kind of dropped a little bit. But Cal's defense is very good. And, and that absolutely could have shaped up as a game where the, the Cal defense kind of takes that, you know, the, the pressure that's put on them because they lose those two off, offensive players and they rise up a little bit. USC's offense, you know, maybe stumbles a little bit and can't figure things out. And this ends up being, you know, like we guessed going into the game, a 17-14, a 14-10, you know, kind of thing uh, as, as both offenses are sloppy. I really right. love that the USC offense just kind of took it to them. They, they, they sensed, you know, this is our game now. We need to put points on the board. And to score 31 in a row against, again, a good Cal defense. This is not the best defense in the Pac-12, but it is a very good – it's certainly one of the best defenses in the Pac-12. So for the USC offense to do that, it does feel like, certainly when, when you lump in, you know, the way they started against Arizona State, now the way they played against Cal, it feels like they are kind of finding themselves and being able – to develop that rhythm. And I think just the comfort level of Keaton Slovis, and that's something that we saw early on in the season, no but then you, you know, you're a true freshman, you have some up and downs. There's some rough patches. There's some three interception games uh, that, that we've seen from him. But at this point, I, I feel like USC really has something with Keaton Slovis. I, I took a look at some of the numbers. Keaton Slovis, Matt Barkley, Cody Kessler, Matt Leinart, some of the recent USC quarterbacks. And I looked at their first full seasons. And boy, Matt, you know, Matt Leinart, obviously, in, in 2003, his numbers just kind of explode off the page. 3,500 yards, 38 touchdowns, nine interceptions. But Keaton Slovis right now, he has a chance to kind of, 
you know, blow Matt Barkley as a true freshman and, and Cody Kessler in his, uh, his second year at USC, his first full year starting, uh, kind of has a chance to, to blow those numbers away. Kingsley right. was right now 223 of 315. That's 70.8%, almost 71%. Matt Leiner was at 63.4. Cody Kessler, 65%. Matt Barkley, just under 60%. So in terms of completion percentage, and I get we're, we're comparing different offenses and, and different sure. uh, you know, points in college football history. But right now, Keaton Slovis, 2,700 yards. Uh, he's, he's right there behind Matt Barkley, eight yards shy of, of Matt Barkley's numbers as a true freshman. Uh, Cody Kessler was at 29, and I mentioned Matt Leinart at 35. The touchdown to interception ratio, boy, after these last two weeks, has started to look really good for Keaton Slovis. 24 touchdowns to nine interceptions. Matt Barkley was at 15 to 14. Cody Kessler was at 20 to seven. And then Matt Leinart kind of got off the charts, 38 to nine. Uh, right. But again, Keaton Slovis is, he, he's, at this point, if you look at the numbers, he's more Matt Leinart than he is Matt Barkley and Cody then Kessler. He is Matt I Barkley. think everybody would have taken the Matt Barkley, Cody Kessler numbers for, for Keaton Slovis this year. Right, right. And here's something interesting, and I know it's a little early to start thinking about this, but depending on what happens with the quarterback situation, I mean, the head coaching situation, there's an argument to be made that perhaps regardless of who the next head coach may be, if USC and the new athletic director, Mike Boone, decides to go in a different direction from Clay Helton, that Graham Harrell may be a fixture, okay, because of the production that he's starting to get out of this offense. Doesn't it kind of lend one to start to wonder what's going to happen when JT Daniels comes back? He came in highly regarded, Harrell. But if you think about, and, it, and perhaps it's not fair that he wasn't in a system that is as structured as this one is, being last year, but when you think about what's best for this program at the moment, one can almost make the argument that it's not going to be JT Daniels' job to lose anymore, that there may arguably be the changing of the guards or a true quarterback competition when you think about what he is capable of doing and um, being in JT Daniels versus what um, Keaton Slovis has already demonstrated that he can do in the, the leadership that he seems to lead with and the reaction that he gets from his teammates cannot be undervalued or under uh, understated. I mean, I, I don't want to write JT Daniels off that, that guy has gone through a lot. I mean, obviously he's going to, he's going to rehab from this injury. What he did, be able to graduate early to be able to grasp whatever the playbook was last year and go out there get banged around in every single game I mean, he he did show a lot of toughness and, and he makes throws that are are terrific Keaton Slovis is is the USC quarterback I, I just I have such a hard time seeing him put together this performance get better pretty much every week like you mentioned the way teammates react to him the way he reacts to teammates the control that he's had of this offense as a true freshman I have such a hard time seeing him get passed up by somebody next year but you mentioned there there are some big I mean massive questions for this USC offense 
when you look forward, when, when you spin things forward nine months, I mean, even six months, three months at, at this point, when you talk about, you know, what spring ball is going to look like. Right. If there is a new coach, do they have their offensive system? Is Does Graham Harrell, does it make sense? Is there a mesh there uh, if he stays on? So much of that is is kind of up in the air. We've seen, you know, with graduate transfer quarterbacks, any coach can just kind of, at this point, go out and find a guy who fits his system. Right. Those are all. Those are all such massive questions. I think that are that are. We're going to find answers to those down the line. But uh, like, like I said, if things kind of remain constant at all, Keen Slows for me has has done more than enough to say that he's the quarterback for you know next year for the foreseeable future. Right. Yes. Yeah. But well, and let's talk about a little bit, you know, some examples of, of what makes him special. Yeah. And, and when you just talk about what happened in this Cal game, again, the looks that he saw may have given him problems early in the season when, when USC went up against the likes of Utah, BYU, and even Notre Dame, uh, you know, who showed a tremendous amount of different looks, multiple uh, fronts, meaning that they made a, a pre-snap read they may have shown four down linemen and then drop eight into coverage and only rushed three. Okay. Well, Cal features a three, four defense, three down linemen defensively, four linebackers and their interior linebackers caused major havoc. This was a situation, Eric, where you can make the argument that because he's seen so much that you almost want to go back to the, uh, the Malcolm Gladwell uh, book, you know, where, Keaton Slovis has almost gotten to his 10,000 hours of on-the-job training, so to speak, sure. learn behavior to where he now starts to understand where those windows and where those pockets are and his chemistry with his wide receivers and that unspoken body language, the receivers are starting to adjust to those windows and pockets as well. So what impressed me most was not what we saw pre-snap, but his post-snaps reads, going through, using his eyes um, to – to to um to distract a, or hold a safety just long enough for his his slot receivers or his outside receivers and Michael Pittman Jr. to vacate empty voids and pockets or the flood routes that we saw designed by Graham Harrell where he sends Bayless Jones in motion and then also runs Stephen Carr the same route so now the the running back has to respect his number one threat which is Stephen Carr, Stephen Carr runs a wheel route. Bayless Jones now, Bayless Jones runs um, a quick out from his fly series space, turns around, catches a little quick pass, you know, picks up a little positive gain. All of those little itty bitty nuances are supplementing for the lack of running game. But where did we see an offense evolve like that before? For me, it's the New England Patriots in the NFL. When the their running game isn't quite working. They were able to get and manufacture short running yards out of throwing quick passes. And it's little things like that that gives you the idea and the notion that it's because of the, uh, the coach's confidence in a true freshman that wasn't highly regarded that they can turn this offense over to him and know that he is the pulse of this offense and he is going to be that coach on the football field for Graham Harrell, whose eyes are upstairs in the press box and trust that he's going to make the best decisions. And eight out of 10 times, he seems to make the best decision. 
whether it's uh, his ability to escape in the pocket and extend the play, or his ability to have a quick release and hit those intermediate routes in anticipation. I love what I'm seeing from this offense, and this offense truly benefited, Eric. So I'm curious about your thoughts about how USC integrated Stephen Carr uh, in his way back. Um, yeah, two I, running backs, Keenan uh, Kristen and um, uh, Stephen Carr both had nine carries, uh, respectively. But I thought it was the impact of those nine carries that made all the difference. Yeah, I still think you need to get more out of the running game. I, I think when if you're USC and you're running the ball, I I, I get teams are gonna you know try to take away the run because they don't want to get beat by the run because they know that USC can can throw the ball. Uh, but I, I think you need to get more out of it. That being said, this, you know, in Stephen Carr's first game back, you can still tell that he's it, – it's not fully Stephen Carr. You know, when, when he is doing stuff, he's not really trusting to go physically at people. The, there's a lot of kind of sideways dancing and, and that sort of thing. But I, I feel like the USC running game, when they lost Marquis Stepp, and, and I get that he wasn't the first guy up this season and it took a while to really get him going. but Playing with, with just the two running backs, I think, is tough uh, for the USC running game. And I think when you were just down to Keenan Christen, there was so much of an effort, like you mentioned, to try to find other ways to get running games going with, with quick passes, with some motion, with all that kind of stuff. I, you know, I, I think maybe mentally they kind of checked out of let's find a running game. And so I think that was a way to get back into it. I, I think you, at UCLA – you got to get a little bit more. And if Avimalapea is back, um, that obviously gives you a, another guy that you can rely on. But I, I just – it feels like the USC offensive line, you can't lean on them to just go get you some cheap yards. You know, I, I know um, Clay Helton talked about he, he really liked the success that they had on third and shorts and, and they're up at the goal line in the run game. And they did have, there, there was a certain third and short where Keenan Kristen hit the corner and, and looked like he might be gone. The linebacker ha had an angle and brought him down. There was another one with Steven Carr where he bounces it outside and, and just wide open for him to go uh, get, get a big chunky yards on a third and short, but it still doesn't feel like when, when Marquis step was in there and it was a third and two, third and one, third and three, it, it, it happened. I mean, the, the offensive line, after the snap could have just laid down and he would have run through and gotten yards. Right. It does. It doesn't feel the offensive line. It doesn't feel like it's a guarantee that you're going to get those short yardage plays right now. So I, I feel like it still is lacking a little bit. That being said, it's a big step up from last year. And I, I think the offensive line is getting better with those short runs, but I, I also, I'm fine when, when Clay Elton says, you know, look, we, we had single coverage. We're going to let the wide receivers make plays. Yep. That's fine with me. You've got, you've got Pittman out there. You've got, Amon, you've got Amon Ross St. Brown. Drake London is doing what he's doing, even without Tyler Vons, who was gimpy with that ankle. Uh, that, that's fine with me. If, if you want to take some of those runs and, and turn them into throwing it to the, the wide receivers, I like that. I, I do like the, getting those running backs out in the passing game. I think there are plays where – Keaton Slovis could find those guys sooner. And I get that they're not, you know, there's plays where running backs go out for a pass and they're the first option. You, you get it to them quickly. And I get that USC, there's a lot of plays where the running back is the fourth option, right. fifth option, yep. so it takes a while to get down to him. But he's doing that more 
and I think that's all positive. I, I think that's all part of, you know, this offense I liked. But I, I wanted to go back to you. I, I had a couple questions while you were talking and wanted to hit some things. And I'm going to ask you this first one and then hope I can remember to get back to the second one. But okay. the, the play for you, the, the one Keaton Slovis play in that Cal game that stands out for you that, that the first thing you kind of remember him doing that was really impressive. Because Clay Helton in his Sunday Night Media call, he called out – it was a second and short down at the goal line. They roll out, and it looked like they were going to try to hit Michael Pittman quickly in the corner of the end zone. Josh Follow, I think, was rolling uh, along the back of the end zone. Everything was clogged up, and, and Slovis throws it away. The next play, they get a pass interference against Pittman. The play after that, they score a touchdown against Stephen Carr. So the thought is, if he forces that throw and it gets intercepted, you're taking points off the board. He threw it away when again clay helton really liked that decision from keaton slovis that's boring we're not, we're not going to pick an interception <laughs> yeah, I, I, okay, totally, I totally understand what clay helton is saying and, and it right. does make sense because there are times where a true freshman quarterback can force that and, and now you've taken points off the board but i g- give me your play what, what play really stood out to you that he made in that game i mean to be honest with you like he made so many spectacular wow plays and, you know, the two that come to mind is the one at uh, Drake London. I believe it was like maybe a 40-something yarder. Sure. Uh, but to me, it was the touchdown throw that he hit Pittman. I mean, and just, you know, because, again, I know it's a jump ball and we get uh, kind of fixated on these jump ball situations. But it was how he threw the rock and, and, and how Pittman just kind of stole the ball out of the air. For me, I, I just thought that, like, wow, you got a tremendous amount of confidence in your arm and in that dude in that moment against tight coverage for him to, to make that play. So when I think about him, I think about how aggressive he is willing to be when he could easily be a check down Charlie. But he's not. He takes, you know, he, he, he understands matchups well enough to know when he can make those crucial throws, but he doesn't just throw it in a situation where the defender could be, um, could, could also have an opportunity to, to, you know, um, intercept the ball. He's normally throwing it over their ear hole when their back is turned to him. And it's because of that, that I'm like, man, you got a lot of command in your accuracy. And it almost goes back to a, a, a story that I heard from Kurt Warner, who was being interviewed on 710 ESPN on the Mason Ireland show. And he talked about how in, in high school, Slovis didn't have uh, D1-like receivers. So he had to learn how to throw into tight windows. And he was challenged to throw guys open. And you take those skill sets that he learned on a 3-8 and eight team in high school, and you put him with elite talent. Now you're starting to see something magical. And for me, it's just that little throw that le- leads me to believe that he doesn't manufacture aggressiveness. He truly is aggressive in his nature, but he picks and chooses moments to when he believes he can make those throws. And, and, and it's because of that that I just feel like he has commanded this offense. There's other an, you know, antiquated op- scenarios that you, know, you, can, um, you can maybe perhaps uh, look to. Maybe the way that he escapes in the pocket and extends plays where he goes in the teeth of the, um, uh, of the, uh, of the pocket and then escapes either to his left or to his right. I love that about him because most young quarterbacks 
will commit one way or another right away and they limit the field. But when you step into the pocket, you now have the attention of not only the Mike linebacker, but also the two safeties if they're playing too high. You keep them, you know, almost frozen in their space while you're, you're, you're giving your offensive players a chance to find nice windows. So for me, it's the throw, but it's his ability in the pocket to manipulate and buy himself extended time. All right, my, mine was the Drake London throw. I, I loved when he gets outside and checks back, looks back inside for defenders coming at him, finds exactly how much time he has, and then makes the throw, again, far enough to where this is a catch for Drake London or an incompletion. That's big. But I, going to my second point, because you led into it uh, pretty well right there. And, and so the other question I have is, and, and it's fair if there's not a real answer to this, but it's something that I certainly wanted to kind of bring up to some of the offensive staff or, or even Slovis this week. What's the difference? Look, I, I get what the difference is in terms of, of the result, but as the play is happening, what's the difference between sometimes, and we saw there were a couple sacks that Cal had where it felt like the ball could have come out thrown away or, you know, at somebody's feet or just give some guy a chance and it ends in a sack. And when you go ahead and scramble and, like you said, step up and evade and move and go and, and that sort of thing, do you, do you just – you live with one because you get the other one? Or, or is that something where, you know, you can completely avoid, you know, taking those sacks? Because it, it, it feels like, again, the, the frustration of, you know, that ball should have come out, but he takes the sack – I don't know how uh, – it, it feels like you have to get over that because you're going to get those plays where he can scramble and, and just hit people. And, you know, the, the Drake London early touchdown against Oregon and, and some of these plays uh, against Cal. But I, I'm curious how you weigh those two things with a quarterback who obviously has that sort of natural inclination to, to do both of those things. Okay, so I'm going to use an analogy to kind of help maybe uh, provide some perspective. Um, as we get older in life, and our parents tend to get older, uh, sometimes uh, our roles and responsibility changes. And what I mean by that is, let's say our family sets up a living will and trust, or perhaps, you know, we take on the care of someone else's child in, in foster care. We become a, cust a custodian, a steward, a trustee, or another word to use is a fiduciary. When Keaton Slovis, after, you know, um, a full body of a season, now kind of recognizes that this team goes as he goes. So when he is careless with the ball, the team suffers from that. And what we're seeing over the last few weeks is he will concede to a sack because not all plays are designed evenly. So sometimes where he may be holding on to the ball a little bit longer, from my vantage point, and again, without talking to him or putting words in his mouth, I almost get the sense that he's willing to take a sack versus maybe trying to throw the ball away but not having a clean window or pocket where he feels like he can throw the ball away without it being in harm's way. So yeah, while he's holding on to the rock a little longer than we like, I will live with those results because he's demonstrated that he makes more better decisions or that he's 
on a consistent basis, he makes efficient and better decisions long-term over the course of a game than he, he has been, um, let's say, in the middle of the season when he was throwing multiple interceptions in the game trying to force the issue. So I think that that's his own maturation, maybe his own internal conversations with his coaching staff that, hey, look, I'm willing to live with this, the results of the sack, because I'm not willing to put the ball in harm's way when I know I got a guy like Amon Ross St. Brown in the slot, Drake Jackson, Michael Pittman Jr., and Tyler Vaughn, who if, you know, if we need a, a third in a long situation, I trust that they will make us right. So I don't know if that's the correct answer, but I'm seeing that holding on to the ball just a little longer and in some cases maybe taking a sack. The one part we, you and I would probably both agree on in taking the sack is the unnecessary hits that he seems to, to consume. Sure. But I would rather him take an un, um, I would rather him take the sack versus throw the ball and then the ball gets deflected or tipped. And now all of a sudden you're, you know, you're turning the ball over and giving your opponent a short field to work off of. Sure. Sure. Um, all right, let, let's spin this forward. The, this has turned into kind of the, the Keaton's Lovis show, which I, you know, the USC offense at times has been the, the Keaton's Lovis show, but I, I want to let you talk defense a little bit and specifically what you saw against Cal and, and, and Clay Hilton on Sunday, his Sunday night call. He said he really likes, he, he really liked the game plan. He likes what Clancy Pendergast is doing. They went in, they told the defensive backs, Hey, we're going to run a lot of man coverage against them, but it's not something where it's so easy to just say we're going man against everybody because then you get, you know, uh, offenses can dial up man beaters and, and then you kind of get yourself in trouble. So he likes the idea of doing a, a, a few different things. And he said Clancy Pendergast has done a great job of disguising his looks, what we talked about other teams doing against Keaton Slovis, where it looks like a cover two pre-snap and then it's a cover three or, or vice versa, or it looks man and it turns out to be zone and that sort of thing what have you seen from the USC defense that you have liked I know you mentioned some things that you've liked a what you've liked and then b how that spins forward against UCLA which we've seen is you know that it might be a little bit straightforward in terms of what they do they want to run the ball and and throw some short passes maybe take a chance deep but it seems very creative in their pre-snap stuff, their alignments, their motions, and kind of what happens after the snap. I'm curious, kind of, uh, again, what you like from the USC defense recently sure. and then how that maybe matches up looking forward against UCLA. All right, so when Clancy's defense is at its best, it's when he has trust and the confidence in the 11 players on defense that they are going to do their job and protect one another. So what do I mean by protection? Protection oftentimes is a certain stunt may be called like a tech stunt, a tackle and exchange, where they come up the field and they cross one another uh, and they loop, okay? In order for, for a defense to have the time to execute that, the secondary has to show a certain formation or front and hold that disguise long enough to confuse the quarterback. So if you start off with two safety highs and now all of a sudden you start seeing a guy like Talano Hufanga, the strong safety creep into the box, 
Well, now you know it's man high, one high safety. So the quarterback is going to look to the, the high safety, then take a peek at the corner and look at their distance. If they are seven yards and maybe outside technique, slightly shaded outside, he's going to think that they're zoned. But if they're press coverage, he's going to see that they're man coverage, and then he's going to know he has some man beaters from that. But if Hufanga holds his position long enough and then post-snap creeps down into the box, now all of a sudden that forces the quarterback to hold just a little bit longer. When you're rotating in different um, secondary members due to injury or due to you know um, any other reason as to why the starters are not in the game, what's happening is those guys are so fixated on just doing their job that they're not seeing the bigger play, the bigger picture. So now you get a healthy Christian Rector when serviceable aside uh, on the opposite side of Drake Jackson. And what we're noticing is that if you give them the a step, they can collapse the pocket. But everything starts in the middle with Brandon Peely and Marlon Tuifolotu and, and, you know, and J2 Fele. When those guys are rotating and causing havoc inside, it, it just really, it collapses the interior part of the pocket. So what I'm noticing is, yeah, Clancy's running a whole lot of man coverage, but he's also sprinkling in cover two. So now you have two high safety shell. And then when he wants to get out of cover two, he's running some quarter, quarter, half situations where the corners are, are comboing. They are responsible for a fourth of the field, the interior, either nickel or weak side linebacker is responsible for a quarter half of the field. And then the safeties are over the top comboing with the, uh, with the linebackers and the nickel. So they're running game. So it almost becomes a three on two on both sides. And, and because of that, it confuses the quarterback who on, on let's say on second and, and intermediate, they see a cover two look where the, the corners are clouded hovering around five yards and, and they're helping with the running game. The next play, they may show the same two high safety look, but the corners almost are kind of like in a man coverage within their zone. And then if the two receivers cross one another, they're passing them along or they're breaking on the route if it's under eight yards. It's because he's starting to integrate these little wrinkles. And then he's also playing a, a, a single high safety robber where they start in two high safeties. And when you get a crossing route, you might get either Hufanga or Isaiah Polamau jump the route. That's why we're seeing all of a sudden uh, Polamau getting more interceptions because the, the quarterback is not accounting for him in that play. He thinks that because a crosser comes around and he free releases it over to Hufanga, now he's able to retreat because they swap responsibilities. We call that a seesaw effect, where you switch responsibilities. It's those little nuances, those subtleties that you would like to have seen at the beginning of the year that is really kind of containing a lot of these quarterbacks. Even going back to Notre Dame, Ian Book, this defensive coaching staff has the right philosophy in mind, but doesn't always have the right personnel on the field to execute the game plan. But when they do, when they have the right combination under the right situations, you are starting to see the results of what they've been hoping for all season. So for me, I am excited about what I'm seeing. I'm still not too confident in the technique from the corners because they find themselves looking like an enigma, not quite in man coverage, not quite in, in off-man 
technique. So what we're seeing is they're in a situation where they're in press coverage, but they're backpedaling, giving the wide receivers a free release. If they can continue to just clean up that technique, I do think that the best performance is still yet to come. Although they put together a complete game, let's face it, this offense from Cal was anemic. They didn't have their starting quarterback that should have given that whole stadium some energy on senior night. And they also did not have their key running back, who is the second coming for, for Cal of, of um, oh, man, who was that big running back that played for Seattle Seahawks? You know, Marshawn one of the, yeah, Marshawn Lynch, 6'1", 229, 230 pounds, just that big physical back. Because they didn't have that, this offense didn't have their, their, their A game. As a result of that, sometimes, though, you know, someone else gets hot. But this was a game where they played just enough where it didn't matter what Cal tried to do. USC pretty much had their way because they played complimentary football. So I like what I see from Clancy Pendergast. Still not sure that he is the solution for USC long term because they don't produce enough pressure on a consistent basis and they're not getting enough turnovers. But for just one game in a vacuum, as Clay Helton likes us to interpret, I like what I'm seeing, and I like the game plan schematically that they are coming into on a game-in and game-out basis. They just need healthy bodies and a consistency with their rotation in order to, to implement and effectively get the results that the game plan calls for. Can, can this USC defense, can it hold it up, up against UCLA? I mean, uh, UCLA is not a – you know, super dynamic, explosive offense. But when they get Kelly going and they've got Demetrius Felton there too with, with some speed, they know what they want to do on the offensive line. And they can throw, you know, six, seven, eight big bodies up there up front. That is not something that USC seems capable of, of handling. Utah that, that's what they do. Utah defensively, they control the line of scrimmage. They were able to shut UCLA down in a big way, and, and UCLA quarterback Dorian Thompson-Robinson was just running for his life on, on some plays where he's, he's 15, 20 yards behind the line of scrimmage with four Utah defenders chasing him. How, how does USC's defense, and we'll, we'll you know, break this down later in the week as well, but first blush looking at this, can, can USC's defense hold up against UCLA's offense? I think that they can contain um, the offense, but if Dorian Thompson Robinson gets going DTR, and when I say gets going, I mean that he finds himself in the pocket and he's able to escape. Let's face it, USC's defense is not quite Utah's defense, okay? But they're athletic enough to match up on the outside in that man-to-man cover situation. But this is an offense that wants to beat you with, multiple fronts with their offensive line. They're going to run jumbo packages, end over slots, meaning that you might see a guard and a tight end, and then on the other side, it might be an, um, an off-balance look where you got two guards and a tackle. I mean, so those off-balance looks give USC problems because USC secondary isn't accustomed to fitting appropriately. Everyday teams run individual drills, nine-on-seven drills. But this is the team in USC that doesn't practice that enough to where they can fit in seamlessly. In the corners, uh, as athletic as they are, they are going to be held accountable 
for helping in those run fits and replacing when the receivers crack down on the safeties. So I do think that UCLA um, will benefit from its running game behind Joshua Kelly in DTR if he gets going. But where I think USC has the advantage is their offense has so much firepower that I'm not certain that UCLA's secondary can contend with the strength of USC, which is their four wide receivers. And when USC goes, uh, their five wide packages and their four wide receiver packages, I just think that it might be a little too much. But we've seen this UCLA team get hot. And in a, rival, in a rivalry game such as this one, anything does happen because we've seen it happen time in, time out. But if USC is going to have success, they're going to have to demonstrate in that first quarter on those first two series and drives that they have an understanding and a command as to how to stop UCLA's potent running game when it gets going. Utah was able to effectively do it because offensively, they had a juggernaut at, at the quarterback position that was athletic and versatile enough to control the clock. Can USC do that? This high-powered offense by USC doesn't really give you the impression that if they have to control the clock, they can do so with the running game. But against UCLA, it may call for that. Yeah, th this is going to be kind of, uh, I think, sort of a, a testament to how much USC wants it against UCLA. I mean, again, you look at what happened last year and Joshua Kelly just went crazy against this USC defense. Uh, I think it's going to be uh, sort of a, a point of pride for those USC big guys to not let that happen again. But they have to actually carry that out. So we'll see, you know, looking, looking ahead to Saturday at 1230 kickoff. Uh, that, that's nice. We're out, we're out of the late night game uh, coming up for the season finale. But I, that, that one's real interesting to me. You, you look at UCLA at the beginning of the year and you pencil that game in as, as a win for USC. But the way they have come on and that, that was a, a big letdown, I think, if you're a UCLA player or fan, what happened against Utah. But they're going to regroup and they're going to come at USC. And again, they kind of know they know what they do offensively. And I think USC getting that performance that they got against Cal gives you that thought of, okay, we, we know what we can do offensively. <laughs> Push goes yes. the shove. We'll throw it up to our wide receivers. And the UCLA defensive backs, I don't think they're, they're – as good as Cal's defensive backs. There, there's some talent there in the UCLA secondary. You know, certainly Darnay Holmes is, is a name that uh, USC fans are probably familiar with. They, they made a big recruiting run at him and, and tried to get him. So there, there's some talent there, but certainly not the kind of secondary where you think, you know, these guys have a real shot at shutting down these, these USC wide receivers. So that, that is kind of, the, I, I think, the matchup to watch. Can USC's offense do enough to where UCLA is kind of grounded out, you know, 16 play, uh, eight minute drives, you know, if they can put those together, just not enough to kind of keep up with, with USC. Yeah. So and, and yeah, Eric, I, like my, my, my last thought, my last yeah. thought on this, yeah. um, go back to, you know, early September when UCLA played Washington state and arguably the best game in the PAC 12 all year, where UCLA came back way from behind, sure. scored 67 points, but they gave up 63 points to a Washington State version of the air raid attack. So if there's any consolation to any of this, you'd like to believe that USC with better athletes and better talent at that position may have their way with this uh, UCLA defense. But 
It's going to, you know, but you don't want the same results in terms of a shootout that way. But USC tends to play better at home than anywhere else. So you, you like their chances. So um, just looking at that game back on September 21st, you know, if there's any indication, can UCLA stop the air raid? I would have to argue that they're going to have their hands full all week trying to figure out ways to contend with the, the likes of the, the quartet of wide receivers that USC likes to showcase. Yeah, and, and certainly hoping for a nice day for Michael Pittman. Again, a, a senior day, he was named uh, on Monday, a semifinalist for the Belinikoff Award for the, the most outstanding receiver in FBS. There, there's some guys with some stats that are, that are better than Pittman's in, in terms of uh, you know, catches yards, touchdowns, but he's, he's third in receptions. He's third in total yards. And that's maybe not something that you expected at the beginning of the year, but he has had some, some monster games and, and you know, he's ready to go. He, he's going to be ready to go against UCLA. So we'll break that game down uh, as, as the, the week goes along, but that's our look at, at kind of, you know, back at Cal and ahead at UCLA and, and where things stand uh, right now for the Trojans. So uh, obviously some big questions to be answered following the season, starting with what USC does with that head coaching position. And that is, that's a situation that will certainly start to break down as, as news comes in and, and as things happen there. But for now, for Daryl Rideau, this is Eric McKinney. Thank you for listening to the We Are SC podcast, Monday Morning Cornerback.